Welcome to NTD Evening News, our top story tonight. Breaking news tonight, a suspected gunman is dead after police responded to a shooting on a college campus in Las Vegas. We bring you the latest. Former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is leaving Congress entirely. The longtime representative will be saying goodbye to the House in just a few weeks. Melina Weiskup has the details and what he plans to do next. U.S. aid to Ukraine hangs in the balance as the U.S. charges Russians with war crimes for the first time. What are they accused of and what are Republicans demanding about the border before they vote on more aid? The Israel Defense Forces make a significant discovery right near a school in Gaza Strip. And a father explains how his family pet comforted his daughter in Hamas captivity. Jason Perry reports. President Biden now suggesting he's not the only Democrat who could beat Trump. At the same time, he says he might not be running if Trump wasn't in the race. Iris Tao on Capitol Hill. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. I'm Don Ma, in for Tiffany Meyer. We begin with a breaking story tonight. A suspected gunman is dead after police responded to reports of a shooting at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Local officials saying there are at least three victims now in unknown condition. The university said that the shooting took place at the school's business building, but added that there were also shots fired at the student union. A nearby hospital said it has received one shooting victim. As of now, Las Vegas and university police are investigating the shooting. Longtime congressman and the only House Speaker in history to be ousted, Kevin McCarthy, is leaving Congress in just a few short weeks. The former speaker says he'll still help where he can, but from the sidelines. NTD's Melina Weiskup joins us from Capitol Hill. Melina, did McCarthy say why he's making this move? So as a matter of fact, Don, he did not say the reason as for why he's leaving Congress. In just a few short weeks at the end of the year, he did say he would continue to work on his passion in a new area by leading the next generation of leaders, as he calls it, as well as to help the Republican Party recruit and fundraise. We'll show you exactly what the Republican congressman had to say in his resignation announcement today. While well, I'll be departing the House at the end of this year, I will never, ever give up fighting for this country that I love so much. We were willing to risk it all, no matter the odds, no matter the personal cost. But to your point as to why he made this decision, Don, remember that this comes just two months after Speaker McCarthy was ousted from that speakership position because there were Republicans who were unhappy about the fact that he worked with Democrats on a temporary government funding bill, an issue that is still very much alive and that current speaker Mike Johnson is actually facing at this point in time. But the bigger impact here of McCarthy leaving is Republican slim majority getting even slimmer. Remember, former Congressman George Santos was just expelled last 
last week uh, because of the uh, allegations of him, um, you know, stealing money from his campaign and his donors. So this Republican majority just got even slimmer, and they're still dealing with some very sticky issues as well as funding. But I guess the good news here for Republicans is that this loss by McCarthy is not permanent because it is expected that a Republican will take his seat because he does represent a very bright red district in California. However, the reality, Dawn, is that it will take a few months for a Republican to fill that slot after the California governor appoints or calls for a special election. And over in the Senate, Republicans are drawing a line on Ukraine aid, demanding policies at the border be addressed first. What are Republicans demanding here? And is there a possibility for any breakthrough? Well, Republicans seem to think that there is a possibility to make some headway on the border issue. Tonight, they went into a vote to block debate on moving forward with a supplemental funding package that would fund Ukraine and Israel, as well as address some areas of the border. But they're just not happy with that. They're actually pushing for stronger border control measures, including things such as asylum reform. They also want to reinstate a Trump-era policy known as Remain in Mexico. And if the question now is, how far is the White House willing to go here. We know they see this as a very urgent situation. Yesterday saying that they only had until the end of the year before they run out of money to fund Ukraine. Today, President Biden also said that he is willing to make significant compromises on the border in order to get some Republican support for Ukraine aid. But the question is, how far is the president and Senate Democrats willing to go here? Here's what some Republicans told me heading into tonight's vote where they blocked the cloture motion. Look, I'm someone who's been a uh, strong supporter of military aid for Ukraine, but we have to secure our own border. And by the way, a lot of Senate Democrats, you should ask them, are in agreement on this. They have a base problem that makes it difficult for Chuck Schumer to do anything on the border. So if we feel like, you know, as a minority party in the Senate, we have a little bit of leverage because they really want the other stuff. Now, Senate Leader Chuck Schumer, just after that vote on the cloture failed, did go to the Senate floor saying that he hopes Republicans come up with a different border proposal that Democrats are willing to get behind. They're still going to be working on those negotiations to see if they can find some middle ground on border and immigration in exchange for this Ukraine aid. Don, back to you. Well, it seems like a lot is happening on the Hill. Melina, thank you so much for the update. The Israel Defense Forces appear to be making steady progress in the campaign to defeat the Hamas terrorist group. In a recent operation, troops uncovered one of the largest stockpiles of weapons found in the Gaza Strip, right near a school. NTD's Jason Perry has a report and takes a closer look at how these military-grade weapons actually get into the Gaza Strip. And a warning, this report contains footage that some viewers may find disturbing. Israel Defense Forces have now uncovered the largest known stockpile of weapons in the Gaza Strip. On Wednesday, the IDF found hundreds of rockets, long-range rockets, drones, and even ready-to-use explosive devices, all found in a residential area near a school and a medical clinic. Now, people may be wondering how these weapons actually get into Gaza, which shares one border with Israel, a smaller border with Egypt, which has restrictions making it difficult for Gazans to enter, and its other border is the sea, which is fortified by the Israeli Navy. 
According to reports dating back to 2014, weapons are smuggled into Gaza from Egypt through underground tunnels connected to the Gaza Strip. The IDF recently released footage inside the Hamas tunnels of the deputy commander of the Northern Gaza Brigade, Wael Rajab. Here he is meeting with other Hamas commanders inside the tunnels. The ones circled in red have been killed, significantly damaging Hamas's capabilities to operate. But civilians continue to be caught in the crossfire, something sadly expected to happen in urban warfare, this time in Rafah, near Gaza's border with Egypt. We were sitting and three strikes hit at once. We started running. We saw that they hit Omar's house that is full with displaced people. Israel has asked residents to evacuate to three designated safe zones in Rafah, but were unable to immediately confirm if the IDF warned residents to evacuate this area. It's a difficult war to fight as Hamas terrorists have embedded themselves with the civilian population. And Israel continues to warn civilians to evacuate, but still some don't leave. However, Israel continues pressing forward to defeat Hamas and also says it's doing everything it can to rescue the remaining 138 hostages in Hamas captivity. These two parents are one of the lucky families who were able to reunite with their daughter who was held hostage by Hamas. Her dad explains the moment she was kidnapped from her neighborhood. From what my daughter said, she was worried that something would happen to the dog if she left her behind. So what she did was she put her under her pajamas jacket uh, when they got into the vehicle and they were driven out. And into the Hamas tunnels she went, still holding her dog. And then when they came out of the tunnel, they had to climb up a ladder. That's when the Hamas people noticed that this was not a doll, it was a living, breathing dog. And a bit of an argument ensued, um, and it was decided to let her keep the dog instead of leave it behind in, in a birdcage. And several weeks later, they were released. Mia said her dog gave her moral support while in captivity. However, Mia also mentioned that she still has two relatives in Hamas captivity. She said everyone needs to do their part to bring all of the hostages home. Jason Perry, NTD News. Six alternate electors for former President Trump are facing charges in Nevada. This makes Nevada the third state to charge Trump electors following the 2020 election after Michigan and Georgia. The six electors face two felony charges. They could face up to nine years in prison. Nevada Attorney General Aaron Ford, a Democrat, launched the investigation this fall. He called the electors' actions an effort to undermine faith in our democracy. Following the 2020 elections, alternate electors met in seven states that eventually went to Joe Biden. The group of alternate electors in Wisconsin is resolving their legal challenges. The 10 Trump electors today reached a settlement in a civil lawsuit. As part of the settlement, they disavowed their votes for Trump following the 2020 elections. They recognized President Biden's win in Wisconsin and pledged to never serve as an elector in any future election involving Trump. In a statement released today, the electors said they were, quote, part of an attempt to improperly overturn the election results. The 10 Republicans must also cooperate with any Justice Department probes into the 2020 elections. There are no criminal investigations against them in Wisconsin. President Biden, who's been campaigning on the notion that he's uniquely positioned to beat former President Trump, 
is now saying he might not be the only one. That's as Trump's taking aim at Biden and skipping tonight's fourth GOP debate. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. President Biden today saying he's not the only Democrat who could beat former President Trump, but he is sounding confident about himself. Do you think there is any Democrat who could defeat Donald Trump other than you? Probably 50 of them. You do believe that there are? I'm not the only one to beat him, but I will defeat him. And this comes after surprisingly stark comments from President Biden on Tuesday night when he told donors that he's not sure if he's going to be in the race if Trump wasn't in the race as well. And Biden's campaign then trying to downplay that by saying that Biden's always called Trump a threat to democracy. And Biden himself similarly also tried to walk it back by saying this later on Tuesday night. Watch. I expect so, but look, he is running, and I just, I have to run. Did you drop out of Trump right now? No, not now. And on the other side, Trump also taking aim at Biden, saying on Tuesday that he doesn't believe Biden will become the next Democratic nominee. I personally don't think he makes it physically. Recent polls have seen a close matchup between Trump and Biden, while the New York Times poll last month showed Trump slightly ahead in battleground states. Thus, as a new CNN poll released today shows that Biden's drop approval rating has dropped to 37 percent amid economic worries. That's almost the worst number he's gotten since taking office. And as President Biden takes on a fundraising sprint this week, Trump will again skip the GOP presidential debate tonight and instead hold a private fundraiser in Florida. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. Turning now to the fourth GOP primary debate, only four candidates will make their points this time, meaning a less crowded stage and possibly more meaningful discussions. Here's what to look out for from each of the candidates. Four Republican candidates are prepping for the fourth debate on Wednesday night, each hoping to pull ahead. Former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley has been enjoying a rise in the polls. That's partly due to solid debate performances, but it could also mean more attacks from other candidates. We'll see if she manages to fend off opponents and emerge with even better numbers. As for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, the debate may be a chance to turn things around. His campaign has been declining and his poll numbers continue to go down. However, he did show a strong performance in a recent debate against California Governor Gavin Newsom. On to tech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. He started with a bang in the early stages of the campaign, but now he's struggling to get more than 10 percent in the polls. This might be partly due to former President Trump's huge lead, leaving the other candidates with tight numbers. Some are speculating Ramaswamy's real goal is to become Trump's 2024 running mate. DeSantis and Haley aren't looking like real options for Trump as neither is on good footing with the former president. The final candidate, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, is betting heavily on New Hampshire. Polls show he comes in third in that state, just behind DeSantis. But similar to Florida's governor, Christie is at odds with Trump, which has hurt his polling numbers overall. And tune in tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern for our exclusive post-debate coverage on NTD News. Gain insights, analysis, and a comprehensive review of the debate. Don't miss out on the in-depth perspectives. Coming up, is it too late to save the U.S. economy? Lawmakers today investigating America's debt. Experts say we'll have to take drastic steps in order to avoid a default in the near future. Big banks versus big regulation. Strict sweeping rules are coming and bank CEOs are fighting them vigorously. We find out why. 
And California's high-speed rail gets more federal funding. It comes amid concerns about the project's cost and viability. That and more when we come back here on NTD News. Welcome back. Rising federal debt is directly affecting the American people. Today, lawmakers are investigating why our debt is so high and how we can save our economy. NTD's Arian Pastor has the highlights from a congressional hearing. As early as next year, paying off the interest on the debt alone could become the second largest federal outlay after Social Security. More than Medicare and defense outlays. A House Ways and Means subcommittee on Wednesday investigating America's national debt. This fall, federal debt topped $33 trillion for the first time ever. As of Wednesday, it stands at $33.8 trillion. A witness explained that just in the last two and a half years, mortgage prices for Americans have increased drastically. That's because they're tied to 10-year Treasury bonds, which are in turn affected by inflation and national debt. $250,000 mortgage on a house back in early 2021 would have about $1,000 a month in a principal and interest payment. At today's interest rates, that would be closer to $1,700 per month. Now, Democrats at the hearing mostly said that America's national debt is on the rise because of GOP tax cuts implemented by former Presidents Trump and Bush. Meanwhile, Republicans blame increased government spending for the rise in debt. Here's what a professor of business economics had to say on the issue. The blame game doesn't accomplish anything. It really doesn't tell us where to go from here forward. Even if I believed it was 100% due to tax cuts or 100% due to spending increases, the world today is completely different. It doesn't tell us the next best step. He said calculations show the U.S. will default on its debt within the next 20 years and that creating fiscal balance at this point requires drastic steps. One option would be to increase all federal taxes by 40% or an immediate decrease in all government spending by 30%. He later said that a possible solution would be a combination of the two, decreasing spending while increasing revenue. This is also what the House Budget Committee wants. Just last week, lawmakers considered three bills which would establish a bipartisan fiscal commission. The commission would assist Congress in finding ways to cut spending and increase revenue. Arian Pastar, NTD News. Joining us now to dive into the issue of America's spiraling national debt, we have Joseph Trevisani, senior analyst at FX Street. And now joining us is Joseph Trevisani, senior analyst at FX Street. So, Joseph, there was a hearing about the national debt today, topped $33 trillion for the first time ever. When is it going to be large enough that we're going to see it as a problem? It will never be a large enough problem, a large enough amount to be a problem until the government starts to have trouble selling its treasuries and they have to pay extra high rates because it's considered the government debt is considered an exceptional risk or at least a higher risk than it is now. As it is, U.S. debt is still some of the safest considered by the market, some of the safest in the world, believe it or not, even with that kind of total. Now, Moody's recently, I think, downgraded its outlook on the U.S. debt. Is that going to have an impact on how many people show up for Treasury auctions? 
Not yet. And I think it would have to be conceded. You'd have to have all of the crating rating, rating agencies agree on that. And it would probably have to be worse. Again, the problem we you have with judging U.S. debt is twofold. It's one, as we've discussed earlier, the size of the market makes the liquidity very attractive. And two, it's competitors. Where else are you going to go if you want a large amount of debt or safe debt? The U.S. still rules the roost on that topic. What is the incentive for the U.S. government to actually tackle this issue? Because the U.S. government can control the interest rate on how much we pay on the debt. If they lower it to near zero, I mean, what's the incentive here? You're right about that. But the problem is that we've seen from the Fed and the government spending over the last three years under the Biden administration, the problem is inflation. And we have seen what happens when you get excessive spending or at least spending that was unwarranted, creating dollars and creating inflation. We've seen that. The cost, the political cost to politicians and to parties is very high. So that is one of the problems that you will see. You can't just ask the Fed, which, of course, is an independent agency, but pressure the Fed to lower rates so that the federal government doesn't have to pay such high interest rate bills. You will end up with enormous inflation, and that will do more damage than the actual debt level. Now, are we approaching the point where we just can't get any more people to lend money to the U.S. government? How, hard, how far away are we from that? I mean, it's very difficult to say, but we're nowhere near that point right now. If you look at what the markets are saying for U.S. debt versus debt around the world, there is absolutely no premium on U.S. interest rates because people are worried. In fact, U.S., as I said earlier, is considered some of the safest debt in the world. Even though logically one will say you can't keep borrowing forever, Nonetheless, in this situation, the U.S. still is able to borrow as much money as it wants. And just one final question here, Joseph. What do you think sure. is going to be the impact as the debt level rises more and more on the government and on regular Americans? Well, you know, the biggest, the biggest impact is the amount of money that the government has to spend on paying interest. And that will actually start to crowd out some of the other um, programs that are voluntary. I mean, a lot of the U.S. budget it, are fixed. It's fixed. It's costs that the, that the government can't change without changing the basic programs behind it. But there is, you know, discretionary spending, and that's going to start to be crowded out as the U.S. debt load and the interest every year climbs ever higher. All right. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today, Joseph Trevisani. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Strict sweeping regulations are coming for the big banks. At a Senate hearing, big bank CEOs all attacked the regulations, declaring they would damage America's economy. NTD's Jack Bradley has more. Basel 3 Endgame. 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 A sweeping set of strict regulations coming for the big banks. At a Senate hearing Wednesday, the big bank CEOs one by one criticized the regulations. The rule would have predictable and harmful outcomes to the economy markets, business of all sizes, and American households. Every element of the Basel III Endgame proposal would make lending and other financial activities more expensive, especially for smaller companies and consumers. The proposal will result in increased costs for airlines, 
manufacturers, food producers, pensions and mutual funds, insurance companies, small businesses and energy companies. The proposal would increase the cost of capital and borrowing across the economy, not just to large and small corporations, but to pensions, municipalities and endowments. Basel III Endgame could raise the amount of money the big banks need to carry by 25%. The CEOs say that if the banks had to keep that much money, it would damage their ability to make loans such as auto loans, mortgage loans, and small business loans, and the effects would reverberate through the entire American economy. Fewer dollars to lend to Americans who need desperately to be engaged in the process of achieving the American dream that is typically defined by having access to capital. Last month, regulators defended Basel III Endgame. They said the more money a bank is forced to carry, the safer that bank is. The proposed rules would apply to banks with at least 100 billion in assets, fewer than 40 of the over 4,000 banks in our banking system. Community banks would not be affected by this proposal. The effects for each bank would vary based on its activities and risk profile. Regulator Michael Barr is dismissive of the aggressive opposition of the banks. He believes Basel III wouldn't increase lending costs by that much. The big bank CEOs strongly disagree. The proposal will lead us to either uh, increase the price um, or to reduce the amount that we lend. The reduction in the capacity of this industry to service clients. No questions asked. This will, to your point, increase the cost of borrowing uh, for farmers and rural communities. Look at airlines hedging jet fuel. If you want to look at other derivatives, which obviously gets passed on to consumers, you can look to gas being hedged in utilities, which obviously gets passed on to consumers. These rules were created by the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, located in Basel, Switzerland. The committee created Basel III in response to the 2008 financial crisis and has been working on it ever since. Banks call it the Basel III endgame because it's the culmination of years of regulatory effort. Jack Bradley, NTD News. And the Biden administration approves more funding for a controversial high-speed rail project in California. The move comes amid years of back and forth between supporters and critics arguing over the cost. The Biden administration on Tuesday said it will give more than $6 billion to a pair of high-speed electric rail routes in the U.S. West. The federal government will give $3 billion for a planned privately owned route between Las Vegas and the Los Angeles area, plus another $3.1 billion for an initial segment of California's publicly funded effort to eventually connect Los Angeles and San Francisco. In a statement, High Speed Rail Authority CEO Brian Kelly said this record federal grant is a welcomed investment in the future of this transformative project. The authority is humbled by the expression of confidence and commitment from our federal partner. In 2008, California voters supported the 500-mile project that promised to carry passengers between Los Angeles and San Francisco in under three hours on a fully electric train traveling at speeds of up to 220 miles per hour. At the time, the project was projected to cost about $30 billion and be up and running by 2020. But more than a decade later, the price has ballooned to more than $100 billion. Funding for the project has been on a roller coaster in recent years. Former President Donald Trump tried to revoke $1 billion in federal money first granted by the Obama administration. 
Then state lawmakers, including Democrats, tried to block Governor Gavin Newsom from releasing more than $4 billion in voter-approved bond money due to concerns about the project's viability. The route between Las Vegas and Los Angeles has been talked about for decades, but no date was announced for work to start. Coming up, cities under fire for canceling Hanukkah celebrations. What the chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom has to say. And teachers in California held a Palestine teach-in, but the district superintendent says it's against school policy. Details to come here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. A shooter opened fire on campus at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. Police say there were at least three victims and the shooting suspect is dead. Congressman Kevin McCarthy will retire from the House at the end of this month. The former House Speaker said he will continue to recruit for the GOP. Senate Republicans blocked a Ukraine and Israel aid package from advancing, saying the U.S. should secure its own border first. Meanwhile, the Justice Department charged four Russian soldiers with war crimes for torturing and detaining an American living in Ukraine. The Israeli military uncovered the largest known stockpile of weapons in the Gaza Strip. They found hundreds of rockets, launchers, drones, and ready-to-use explosive devices, all in a residential area near a school. In a rare move, President Biden said he might not be the only Democrat who could beat former President Trump. And Trump said he doesn't believe Biden will be the Democratic nominee. The Jewish people will begin celebrating Hanukkah tomorrow, but cities around the world are under fire for canceling menorah lightings and removing Jewish symbols. That includes an art festival in Williamsburg, Virginia, where organizers say they don't want to appear as if they're taking a side on the ongoing war. Joining us now to dive into this, we have Rabbi Abraham Cooper. He chairs the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. He's also Associate Dean at the Simon Weisenthal Center. And joining us now is Rabbi Abraham Cooper. So it seems like uh, many menorah lightings are being canceled around the world as towns remove Jewish symbols over the Hamas war. And uh, in some festivals, organizers uh, are saying that it's taking sides potentially to allow a menorah lighting. What are your thoughts on that? Well, Don, you've raised a number of uh, uh, issues. Um, what we are talking about fundamental religious freedoms here, but also uniquely in the United States because the Jewish festival of Hanukkah that celebrates the victory of a few over many thousands of years ago in the land of Israel uh, and the other festival for Christians happened to coincide in the same month. The theme of Hanukkah is light over darkness. Uh, and uh, Jews around the world, especially kids, because they get presents, they play games, etc., look forward all year uh, to Hanukkah. And for the adults, it's a reminder about Jewish life and of Jewish uh, history and Jewish destiny. Uh, in so far as some of the cancellations, uh, I think in part there are some people who thought, well, maybe because. There's a war going on right now in the Middle East, and, and someone will be upset. It's absolutely the wrong message at the wrong time to the wrong people. 
the people who want to shut down the Jewish people, who want to eliminate us, are, pe are groups like Hamas. They've said openly that their goal is to um, uh, genocide uh, Israel, get rid of the Jewish people. So the notion that in some way you have to be sensitive to that worldview uh, simply doesn't make any sense. Once you start uh, connecting uh, the local Jewish communities and local Christians and others to events that are taking place around the world, which they have no control of, uh, and basically say, no, no, you can no longer be part of the public square of celebration of our diversity and our universal and particular values, that's absolutely a victory for groups like Hamas. It will only further embolden groups that are seeking to bully Jewish individuals, intimidate them, and silence them. And uh, Hanukkah's message is the exact opposite. Stand up with dignity for your own values, uh, respect others, but expect in return that they will respect you. And I think once uh, decision makers in different cities in Canada and the U.S. understood what Hanukkah is all about, most, if not all, have reversed those decisions, and we welcome those reversals. And you mentioned earlier that some individuals, Jewish individuals, are being in intimidated. Uh, so I wonder, in your view, what, what's what's the way to uh, support Israel and the Jewish people at a time of war and as well as heightened anti-Semitism? Well, I think most of all, in terms of fighting back against anti-Semitism, is for our neighbors to understand what we're going through. If you're a fellow student at Harvard or Penn or Cornell, not of the Jewish faith, uh, go over to the dorm room and let your, your fellows, freshmen or senior, know that you know, you're with them. Uh, if they feel they need someone to, uh, to walk with them across uh, a campus, you're there for them. It's to send a message that you don't want anyone to be bullied. Yes, there's freedom of speech, and yes, there are many sides to different issues, but right now, Israel is fighting against a terrorist group that gets most of its money from the Iranian regime. And this is a battle uh, for Israel's existence. And also, uh, we're also right now a family that's suffering because on October 7th, the uh, Hamas attack on Israel led to the mass murder of over 1,200 Israeli civilians, women, children, grandparents, they're the ones who were targeted. The single largest single death toll of Jewish people since the end of the Nazi Holocaust in the 20th century. So we're still grieving as this Hanukkah comes around. And uh, at the end of the day, I think whatever faith you, you have, or even person doesn't have a religion, is that it's up to the human spirit uh, to prevail, and it's up for each of us uh, to embrace basic uh, values of humanity, mutual respect, uh, and human dignity. When you do that, great things will happen. When you embrace the opposite message that gives excuses for mass murder, for mass rape, for kidnapping, for holding children hostage, that's a prescription for disaster. And right now, America's kind of at a tipping point. 
which way it's going to go. The Hanukkah message is, if you stay the course, the good guys, the message of hope and mutual respect and tolerance will prevail. So I have one more question for you. Broadly speaking, what are some typical things that one can do with helping to support those facing ethnic or religious persecution? You know, I think one of the most important lessons that I ever absorbed came from a very, very smart chancellor of Yeshiva University who told me 95% of leadership is just showing up. There are times the most important thing we can do for the other, for people of other faiths, of other religions and nationalities, is just letting them know that you care. And today in the world of social media, sometimes you can just do that by sending an email or a text. And if you have, uh, if you're lucky enough to live in a place like LA where we have basically every nationality on the planet, look for an opportunity uh, to join one of the uh, Jewish celebrations and uh, enjoy one of those uh, sometimes greasy potato latkes. Uh, you're not necessarily going to change your faith, but that very act of showing up, of solidarity, if you will, of giving that virtual hug, that's a great start towards, uh, towards being a real leader. All right. Thank you so much for your insight today, Rabbi Abraham Cooper. Thank you, Don. In California, over 100 teachers signed up for a Palestine teach-in. Despite pushback from the school district, the superintendent said it's against school policy, while the teachers call it a rounded view of Palestinians. We hear more from NTD's David Lam. Amid the Israel-Hamas war, there's conflict on school campuses in Oakland, California. Some teachers held a teach-in session on Wednesday with curriculum focused on what they say is a rounded view of Palestine. We decided to go through with it in response to the fact that OUSD does not have a very good curriculum. It's very one-sided. They, they, OUSD said that we were being one-sided, but what we were trying to say is we need to flesh out the whole picture. For students. Greenspan, an advocate for the teach-in, says there were over 100 sign-ups along with a webinar for classrooms to join. Greenspan estimated over 100 teachers participated out of the district's 2,000 teachers. Oakland Unified School District did not approve of the curriculum, saying it's against school policy. The webinar portion, called From Gaza to Oakland, lasted about 45 minutes. Students heard from community representatives from Palestinian, Jewish, and black youth organizations and asked them questions. Panelists spoke about Palestinian land and a call for peace. Local media reports that the school district said, quote, This is not what teachers should be teaching, and the district made this clear to all principals and teachers. In Santa Clara, California, David Lamb, NTD News. Coming up in baseball, where will Shohei Otani sign, and why is there so little news about him? NTD's Dave Martin will be in the studio to discuss his secret negotiations when we come back. Welcome back. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, you know, plenty of sports to discuss today, but let's start with uh, college football. Uh, now, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has pledged a million dollars 
to sue the playoff committee for leaving out an undefeated Florida State squad. Is there any precedent for this working? No, I mean, it's a nice gesture, but the court would have to work very quickly to reverse this. I mean, they play in less than a month. And then if they do win, you know, who are they replacing? Alabama, because Bama was the fourth seed. And then what, what about Bama? Did they go to the Orange Bowl to replace them and replace Georgia? I mean, there's so many, there's so many questions that it brings up. Now, I didn't agree with the, com the committee's decision either, but they've said excluding teams based on who was injured or not was a possibility, so I'm not even sure what legal argument could really be made. Now, this whole thing was made worse by the fact that they were fourth in the next to last rankings. Then they beat Louisville for the ACC title, and somehow they got dropped behind Alabama and Texas. So that whole fourth thing turned out to be quite a tease. I think it really showed how useless it was to release any of the rankings besides the final one. Now, elsewhere uh, in the game, the biggest award in the college football, uh, the Heisman Trophy, will be handed out Saturday. Now, there are a number of awards uh, given out. Why is this one in particular most coveted? I would say tradition. I mean, it goes back nearly 90 years, and back at that time, it was practically the only one for college football, too. Uh, also, you know, they're very smart about the marketing of this. You know, it's hosted a very exclusive club in New York City. They fly out the finalists. It's now televised nationally. Uh, and the trophy pose has become so well known as well. You know, the award is usually given to a quarterback. That'll probably happen again this year as Jaden Daniels of LSU is considered the front runner. There is a wide receiver among the four finalists, Marvin Harrison Jr. The only one receiver has won it in like the last 30 years. So uh, we'll have to see who the committee decides. Well, looking at the pro game, the New York Jets announced they'll uh, have a new starting quarterback this week. It won't be Aaron Rodgers. What do you make of their decision to go back to Zach Wilson? I mean, I'm not surprised. They tried Tim Boyle. They tried Trevor Simeon. It didn't quite work out with either of them. Now, Rodgers, of course, is still recovering from his Achilles injury. Maybe he can go in a couple of weeks. We're really not sure. They don't have too many options other than Wilson. I mean, the trade deadline is over. Rodgers was actually injured before them. They didn't go out and do a trade then for whatever reason. I think they thought Wilson would be the man, but this is the second straight year they've been benched. I'm guessing if he doesn't spark the offense, he will be back next season. Now, I'm sure, you know, once they got Rodgers in the offseason, they never envisioned this problem would be happening. But they had a good backup last year in Mike White, but they didn't re-sign him for whatever reason. Now, I'll grant that whoever does become their quarterback is in a tough situation. You have a makeshift offensive line. But they have such a good defense, it's kind of sad to see it to go to waste right now. All right, let's shift gears to baseball. It seems like the offseason uh, has been really slow. Uh, it's been more than a month now since free agency started, and not only is Shia Otani still available, but it seems like there's very little news about him. What do you make of this? Yeah, I think the media is tired of all the secrecy, too. We're used to a huge rumor mill with news coming out every day of who made the latest offer, who he's meeting with, who he's leaning towards. None of these reports are ever substantiated, of course. There's probably more interest in his signing than there is in the history of baseball. I mean, he's going to sign a record-breaking contract. We all know that. And baseball fans, they want to know what's happening behind the scenes. You know, is my team involved or not, you know? Now, nothing has been reported, and of course, ESPN's Buster Olney, who's a very well-respected baseball reporter, reporter, he's saying that Otani's camp has been tight-lipped about it, and they've required teams that they're meeting with to be tight-lipped as well. So, of course, teams are obeying because, you know, they want a chance with Otani. Maybe it's a culture thing. In any case, it is certainly made for, as you said, a very slow offseason. Well, David, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Don.
And that's all for today's news. Tiffany will be back tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in. Good night.